Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. But in 2014, there was a really popular movie that came out. Some of you may remember it. It's called God Is Not Dead. Do you remember that movie? It made $26 million at the box office. But amazingly, it only cost $2 million to make. And when people who judge movies looked at this, they said something was special about this movie. It really touched uh, and it resonated with a chord in our culture. So that so many people watched this relatively low-budget movie. And what was that chord that it touched? It talked about atheism. Because so many people have been taught in our culture that God is dead, that God doesn't exist. And if you go to higher universities, all the professors are atheists. And yet this movie said the opposite. God is not dead. God is alive and well, and he is actually actively involved in everyday life. And many people resonated with that. Well, this morning I'd like to propose to you there's a question out there that's going through college campuses and modern life that is even more important than God existence. It's the question of what you think about God's book, the Bible. Is the Bible just a collection of legends and errors? Or is this book something that can actually be trusted? Is this book something that can be relied upon? Does this book always tell us the truth or not? If you go to many universities today, they will tell you that the Bible cannot be trusted, that the Bible is riddled with errors, and they'll try and give you all kinds of examples of what they claim are errors in this book. To give you an example of what many uh, people believe today, let me just quote for you Karl Barth. He's a, a theologian, and this is what he says. Incidentally, I don't agree with him, but this is what he says anyway. The prophets and apostles, as such, even in their office, even in their function as witnesses, even in the act of writing down their witnesses, were real historical men as we are, and therefore sinful in their action, incapable and actually guilty of error in their spoken and written word. Karl Barth says this book is filled with a bunch of errors and you cannot trust it. And he's a theologian. Now I would understand if that was being taught in just the liberal universities like maybe Duke or the University of Chicago, but the honest truth is Karl Barth's words are echoed down the corridors of even Christian universities today. Sometimes we send our children to a Christian university hoping that their faith will be built up, but they run into professors who have a very low view of this book, and the reality is their faith is torn down. What should we believe? Is this book trustworthy? Or should we believe the professors that are out there today, many of whom believe this book cannot be trusted? Well, I would propose to you what you answer with regard to that question, the trustworthiness of this book, is probably the most important question you will answer in all of your life. 
And this morning, I'm going to help you see that this book is completely, totally, absolutely trustworthy and worthy of your allegiance. How am I going to do that? Well, there's a variety of ways. I could go to other scholars who would quote against the professors in schools, and you go back and forth that way. We could go to archaeology and we could talk about a bunch of stuff they dug up in the ancient world and say, look, this book actually proves itself true over time. But I think there's a better way. The better way is to simply ask this book what it says about itself. Does the Bible actually claim to be trustworthy? Does the Bible claim to be the literal words of God? If it does, we should be careful about disagreeing with it. But if the Bible never makes a claim like that, we're pretty foolhardy to say it is God's word. So this morning, we're going to look at this book and see what the Bible says about itself. Does it claim to be the infallible, trustworthy word of God upon which we should base our entire life? The key text we're going to build our message off of this morning is found in 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And I put that in your outline if you would like to follow along. Let's read it together before we dive into it. It says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter does is he talks about the trustworthiness of this book, and he talks about it first from the perspective of the Old Testament, and then he flips and he talks about it from the perspective of the New Testament, that both the old and the new are the trustworthy, infallible word of God. And so that's the outline we'll follow this morning. First, we'll see what the Old Testament says about itself, and then we'll see what the New Testament says about itself and see if this is a book that we can rely on. So in your outlines, we'll begin with this. What does the Old Testament say about itself? And the answer to that comes out of verses 10 and 11. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And the first thing we learn is this. The Old Testament considers itself to be the flawless words of God. And we see that, first of all, the Bible is about our salvation. If you're someone who likes to circle words in your outline, circle this in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, where it says, concerning this salvation. The Bible is about our salvation. The problem in the world is that Satan has introduced sin, and sin has introduced death, that is the problem, that is why we sin, that is why we die, and that's not just a problem in our lives, but all of creation, the scripture says, is in bondage to decay. That's the problem in this world, 
every single thing goes back to sin as the problem. But the good news is that God had a plan to solve the problem. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sins. And by faith in him, we can be saved. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, that sounds so churchy. But it may sound churchy. But take the veil off of that. It's really rather modern. It's the same storyline as the Marvel comic movies, isn't it? In every single Marvel movie, there's someone who's the enemy who comes. The enemy is going to destroy life. He's going to destroy the planet. And there's nothing that, that we can do to save ourselves. So we need a hero who is like us, but who is better than us to come and save us. That hero is Captain America. That hero is Thor. It's the same storyline as the Bible, isn't it? Where we have an enemy... Satan, who's introduced sin and death, and the hero who is like us, but who is greater than us to save us, is called Jesus. So it may be an old storyline, but if you think about it in Marvel comic movies, it's really a new storyline, but it's the storyline that everybody really is attracted to in life. Our, you know, here's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is this. I have to tell you, by the way, that all the Marvel comic movies aren't true. I'm sorry. There is no hero coming to save you. Captain America, Thor, they don't exist. But the good news is this. The biblical storyline is true. The hero has come. The hero does save us, and his name is Jesus. So do you want to believe in fantasy, or do you want to believe in reality? Reality is better than any fantasy when it comes to Jesus. The next thing we learn, not only is this book about salvation, but it says the prophets who prophesied. Well, we're, who are or who were the prophets Prophets were men raised up by God and they spoke or they wrote God's word. Now the interesting part is they're called prophets for a reason because they spoke prophetically. In other words, they didn't just speak God's word but they spoke God's word about the future before it actually happened. You may not realize this, but the, in the Bible, about 25% of the Bible was a prophetic in nature when it was written, prophesying about what would happen in the future. And every single prophecy that has been fulfilled has been correctly and fully fulfilled. Not all the prophecies have been fulfilled yet, but all that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled without error. That's significant because it's what sets the Bible apart from all other religious books. People often say, well, the Bible is no different than the Book of Mormon or, or the Quran. Oh, it's totally different. The Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita has no prophecy in it about the future. 
It wouldn't dare speak about the future because it would always be an error about the future. Yet 25% of the Bible is about the future and has never spoken wrong about the future. That's why this book is all about God's revelation. It is not about human speculation. Did you get that? It is God's revelation, not human speculation. This is why it says over 3,800 times in this book, thus saith the Lord. Because these are God's words, not man's words. Well, you might ask this question. How? How could the Old Testament prophets speak about the future with such great accuracy? And if you're following along in 1 Peter, you'll see it. It says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Apparently, when the prophets prophesied, the Spirit of Christ was in them, enabling to them to prophesy and speak with great accuracy about the future. That is why they got it right. They didn't guess. They didn't speculate. God's Spirit instructed them on what to say. Incidentally, think about this. Jesus was able to live a perfect life as he lived in dependence upon the Spirit. The prophets in the Old Testament were able to prophesy perfectly because they were also in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. As Jesus lived perfectly by the Holy Spirit, the prophets prophesied perfectly by the Holy Spirit, which means that everything they said is exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to say without error. Because it wasn't just their words they spoke, it was God's word that was spoken through them. This is what we believe at Crosswinds. We believe in something called verbal plenary inspiration. Now, I put those, that in your outline. Let me explain to you what that means. We believe in verbal inspiration. That is that every single word in the Bible was exactly what God wanted to say. And many liberal people out there will say, it's just the concepts or the general ideas, but the words are gotten wrong. That's what Karl Barth will say. We believe the exact opposite. The words are exactly right. Plenary means full. We believe all the words are exactly what God wanted to say. And inspiration, we've already covered that, that the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets so they said exactly what God wanted to say. Now, if this is true, we should begin to see uh, that the Old Testament has a lot of information in it about Jesus. Because Peter said that the prophets prophesied not just about the near and immediate future with great accuracy, but about the distant future with great accuracy as well. Ultimately about the coming of Jesus, the hero of this story, who is the one person whom this book is all about. So, if we look in the Old Testament, since the Holy Spirit is controlling the prophets to say exactly what he wants to say, we should be able to find all kinds of details about Jesus in the Old Testament. 
let me show you how this unfolds. First, we find that Jesus shows up in direct prophecy in the Old Testament. The first one you're, I'm sure you're familiar with, but let's think about it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, as it says in Isaiah 7:14. Now, we read that little verse all the time at Christmas, but we often miss the impact of this verse. Isaiah is writing 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ comes. He's saying what the Holy Spirit wants him to say. And he says, this is how you can tell when the hero of the story arrives. Look for a pregnant virgin. Now, that doesn't happen every Wednesday. I mean, that's something unique. You should be able to find a pregnant virgin will give birth to a son. And who is this son going to be? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So by prophecy, and because the Holy Spirit has inspired Isaiah, he says, look for a pregnant version who is God with us. That means the hero of this story, he's arrived in the flesh. Let me give you another example. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah is also an Old Testament prophet. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, writing around 700 B.C. And we're not talking at this prophecy about the birth of Jesus, but the location of where he would be born. He would be born, it says, in the city of Bethlehem. You need to understand what Bethlehem is like. That's not a big city. It's a really small city where if you want to get married in Bethlehem, you have to marry a relative because it's that small. But out of this tiny city that is not even listed on maps will the one who is the hero of this book be born. And, but it's interesting what it says about him. You will be the ruler of Israel, but whose comings forth is from of old, from ancient days. That means that he has existed, literally, from eternity past. While he will be born in Bethlehem, he has always existed in all of eternity. That's what the prophecy says 700 years before Christ comes and fulfills it exactly. Anybody beginning to smell Jesus and all this and how this comes together? Let me give you another prophecy that was inspired by God, obviously, which all of the Old Testament is. Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi was a prophet of God who wrote 400 years before Jesus Christ's birth. And he says, when the hero of this story comes, he will have a messenger who will prepare the way before him. We already know who that messenger is, John the Baptist. But then he will come suddenly, it says, into his temple. Doesn't sound significant, 
until you realize that could never be fulfilled today. Because if you noticed, the temple doesn't exist in Jerusalem anymore. The Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. Shortly thereafter, the Muslims put the Dome of the Rock over top of the Temple Mount. This prophecy needed to be fulfilled sometime between 400 BC when it was given and 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. You're running out of options. This prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. Let me give you another example. Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is Isaiah writing 700 years before, once again prophetically inspired by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wants him to say, describing what it'll be like when the hero of this book finally arrives. And then he says in this context there'll be healings, healings all over the place. The blind will see, the lame will walk, those who cannot hear, the deaf will hear. And he says in this context, the healings will not just be little healings and partial healings. We learned this earlier in Mark. Jesus does all things well. That the healings would be tremendous. The lame man will literally be able to run. The one who has never been able to speak will be able to sing. Now, we've been in Mark, I think, about 29 messages so far. Can Jesus heal anybody? I hope so. Did he heal, like, four people? Thousands of people he healed. That would be one of the signature marks of the arrival of the Messiah, the amount of people he healed. And that's what it says prophetically, and that's exactly what Jesus did. I'll give you another example about how you can see uh, prophecy being inspired. It comes from Zechariah. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Zechariah is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's like, okay, you're worth 30 pieces of silver. Now go into the temple and throw it to them. He's like, okay, not too sure why I'm knowing it. Don't quite get it, but I'll obey it. We find that this was actually prophecy given in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus, because Jesus was betrayed by Judas for how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver. Notice, not 29, not 31, not 46. Think of how many options there are, but exactly 30 pieces of silver. Silver, not gold, not bitcoins, not pesos, not rubles, but pieces of silver. Are you noticing the specificity here? And the depth of accuracy that was done in prophecy here. 
and it was completely and accurately fulfilled in the New Testament. So you see when the prophets were prophesying <coughs> in the Old Testament, they were not saying things with speculation, but the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to say exactly what he wanted to say without error. Another prophecy comes from Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. We could spend a fair amount of time here, but we won't because we have to keep moving. But Psalm 22 it gives graphic and specific details of Jesus Christ's death by crucifixion what he would experience, the nailing of hands and feet, the physiological responses that he would go through as he died on the cross. It's all prophetically written about in Psalm 22 with great accuracy. But here's what's interesting. When Psalm 22 was written, death by crucifixion had not yet been invented yet. So you can't sit there and say, well, the psalmist just sat there. Thank you, Tom. Psalmist just sat there and wrote and said, well, I'm just going to describe crucifixion. <laughs> crucifixion has never taken place at that point. But you see, the Holy Spirit inspired the prophet to say exactly what he wanted to say about the way things would unfold in the future for Jesus without error. Another one, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now we're back to Isaiah, once again written 700 years before Jesus comes. And if you ever have a chance, go ahead and read Isaiah 52 and 53. Those two chapters are often called the gospel in the Old Testament because they are filled with so many details about Christ's life and Christ's death with great specificity. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I simply want to point out two things. It says here about Jesus, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That he would die with the wicked, but somehow be with the rich in his death. But that was exactly what happened to Jesus, wasn't it? Crucified between two thieves. Yet after he died, a secret disciple named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, came and was all about taking Jesus' body down and giving him his own tomb. Now, that was all prophetically talked about 700 years before. It happened right here. How can that happen? You see, the Old Testament prophets were never speaking things out of their own head. They were only saying what the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to say. That is why there is so many Old Testament prophecies that are filled with complete specificity in the New Testament times. Well, I'll answer another question. Not only does, do we see Jesus in specific Old Testament prophecies made about him, 
But oftentimes people have asked me, if Jesus is the hero of the whole book, why does he only show up in the New Testament? Like, where was he in the Old Testament? Was he on vacation? No, actually, he's all over the Old Testament, too. Here's the answer. Jesus shows up as the angel of the Lord. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll find a figure called the angel of the Lord who is described as God. The angel of the Lord is the one who appears to Moses at the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is the one who appears to Abraham. The angel of the Lord is the one who is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is always about the business of saving God's people. But when you get to the New Testament, even though the angel of the Lord is about saving God's people and he is called God in the Old Testament, you get to the New Testament, he disappears. And all of a sudden you have Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and he is doing the same thing. He's saving you and me, but now, since he has flesh, he is able to save us in a much greater way than he ever could before. He can save us from our sin. So you see, Jesus is in the Old Testament. He's referred to as the angel of the Lord there. And Jesus is in the New Testament when he takes on flesh, all about saving us. Well, there's one other way I'd like to point out to you that Jesus is prophetically um, in the Old Testament. And that is that Jesus shows up in figures and events that are types of Christ in the Old Testament. Not only is there specific prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament, but the meta-narratives, the broad storylines of the Old Testament are all about Jesus. Let me show you how this works. For instance, in the Old Testament, you have a priest. The priest is the one who enables the relationship between God and his people. But then you come to the New Testament, and you have Jesus, who is called the ultimate priest, the much greater priest, to enable a much better relationship between God and his people. In the Old Testament, you have the king. The king is the ruler of God's people. But the kings in the Old Testament were always faulty, and they always failed. But then you come to the New Testament, and Jesus is described as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one king who never fails. In the Old Testament, you had the prophets, the prophets who spoke for God to the people. But when you come to the New Testament, Jesus is the ultimate prophet, who much more speaks a better word than any other prophets in the Old Testament, speaking, God speaking directly to us, his people. In the Old Testament, you had animal sacrifices that you did to figuratively take away sin, though they never literally took away sin. But as soon as you get to the New Testament, animal sacrifices stop. Because the Bible tells us is that Jesus is the ultimate once for all sacrifice for all of our sin. So you see how the sacrifices of the Old Testament actually pointed forward to what Jesus came to do for us in the New Testament? You see how this is all one tapestry, both old and new? In the Old Testament, God dwelled among his people in the temple. But when you come to the New Testament, 
And you have in John chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. What temple was he talking about? His own body. The Old Testament temple, which was God dwelling in, among his people in a building, was only pointing forward to the much greater New Testament temple, which is God dwelling among his people in a body through Jesus Christ. One and the same thing. Isaac in the Old Testament. Isaac was the one who carried his own wood up a mountain and then laid his life down to be sacrificed by the will of his father. But did you know Jesus is the greater Isaac? Jesus carried his own wood up a mount called Golgotha and laid his life down to be sacrificed because of the will of his father. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Joseph is the one who was second in command to the ruler of the world, and he used his power to save his rebellious brothers who had betrayed him. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the right-hand man to the ultimate ruler of the world who used his position of authority to save us, his rebellious brothers who had betrayed him. How about Jonah? Jonah was three days and three nights, as good as dead in the heart of a fish, or in, the, in a fish. We covered this last week, actually. But remember, God commanded the fish to vomit him up, and as if Joseph came back to life, and he preached salvation to a lost people. Jesus is the greater Jonah, who actually was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he came back to life, and he also preached salvation to a lost people. So you see this book, all of this book from beginning to end is all about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has inspired not just the prophecies about Jesus to talk about his coming in the Old Testament, but even the meta-narratives of the stories themselves to be echoes and reflections of what Jesus Christ came to do for you and for me. All of this book is written by the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets. Well, we've looked at what the Bible says about itself through the Old Testament prophecies, but maybe the better person to ask about this book, if we can trust it, is like Jesus. How did Jesus view the Old Testament? I mean, we can trust him to save our souls, if we can trust him to save our souls, we can certainly trust what he has to say about this book. Let me show you what Jesus says about the trustworthiness and reliability of this book. Jesus viewed the Old Testament as the flawless words of God. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says nothing will pass from this law until all is accomplished. Not an iota or a dot. And you're like, okay, well, what is that? You need to know a little Hebrew. So here's your Hebrew lesson for the day. An iota means a yod. A yod is the smallest consonant in Hebrew. It's the size of our apostrophe. 
A dot is the smallest vowel in Hebrew. The vowels are put under the consonants in Hebrew, and the smallest vowel is a dot. It's the size of our period. Jesus says that every single consonant and every single vowel, even the smallest consonant and the smallest vowel, are exactly what God wanted said. Does Jesus hold a high view of the Old Testament? I hope so. Yes. He trusts every letter is what God wanted said without fault. Let me give you another example. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now in this context, Jesus was arguing with the religious leaders of that day, some of whom believed that people are not alive after death. And Jesus says, I can prove to you there is life after death. Because it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a present tense verb. So that means they are still alive. Jesus considered the very tenses of the verbs to be exactly what God wanted said and to be inspired by him and so authoritative that he argued for the existence of life after death based on the tense of one verb in the Hebrew text. That is how authoritative and accurate Jesus viewed the very words of God exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted written. Incidentally, Jesus also viewed the Old Testament as all about him. Just like we made that case earlier, Jesus makes that case himself. John chapter 5, verse 39. He says to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Now he's talking to the religious leaders at this point who, many of whom have memorized, literally memorized their Old Testaments. But while they know it in their head, their hearts are closed to see Jesus in it. He said, just look, I'm in there. I'm all over the place. I showed you some of the places, specific prophecies with great details and accuracy about Christ's coming. Types such as Isaac and Jonah and Joseph, that all predict and prophesy Christ's coming. Look at another one, Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The context is Jesus is risen from the dead, but not all the disciples know. Some of them are walking down the Emmaus Road, and they're depressed. They're heartbroken because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, but yet he died on the cross, and now what are we supposed to do? And Jesus comes up, and he's, they're kept from recognizing him, and Jesus sort of plays dumb a little bit and walks along and says, wait a minute, didn't you realize all these things that were to happen to the Messiah are actually prophesied in the Old Testament, and they have one of these walking Bible studies. I wish I could have been in it. 
where Jesus just puts his finger in the Old Testament and starts quoting one thing after the other, how everything about his life, death, burial, and even resurrection was prophesied about beforehand. Now, we've looked at the Old Testament. We've seen that the Old Testament claims to be the very words of God. We've seen that it proves to be the accurate words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wanted said. Jesus says the Old Testament is flawless down to its very letters, down to its very tenses. What about the New Testament? Should we trust that as well? Let's go ahead and look. What does the New Testament say about itself? Let's go back to 1 Peter as our touchstone text. Peter says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here's my point. I put it down for you on your outlines. Just as the Holy Spirit ensured the prophets wrote the Old Testament accurately, the Holy Spirit also ensured the apostles wrote the New Testament accurately. Just as the Holy Spirit inspired every word of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit superintended and controlled every word of your New Testament. There are some uh, unique verses that tell us about how the New Testament apostles were inspired. Let me show you this. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We've seen in the Gospel of Mark as we've been studying it, Jesus has been taking less time with the crowds so he can spend more time teaching and training his disciples. Because he knows that when he is gone, they are going to be the ones that are going to carry the gospel message into the world. So he's pouring into them. And they've been with him 24-7. They'll be with him for three years straight. So they know what Jesus thinks. They know what Jesus says. They know what Jesus does. You hope they don't forget any of it. But right here, there's a promise that the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance everything that he has said to them, that they would remember flawlessly the words that Jesus spoke to them. So those apostles would be the touchstone of truth upon which the church could be built upon. You see how we can trust our New Testament? Now, all of the New Testament documents were either written by an apostle or by someone closely associated with an apostle. For instance, the Gospel of Mark that we've we're, been studying recently, it's written by John Mark, who was not an apostle, but John Mark was the traveling companion and close associate of the apostle Peter, with whom this would apply to. In fact, we've seen that Mark almost sounds like Peter's spoken words. So we know that the Gospel of Mark is trustworthy because it was ultimately Peter's words and then verified by Peter as trustworthy and true. John chapter 16 verse 13 says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. 
that the Holy Spirit would ultimately be the one to guide the apostles into truth. Now, I want to pause from my line of reasoning and just take a few moments of reflection. Who knows the actual historical Jesus better? University professors coming 2,000 years later after Jesus who want to pick and pull apart the Gospels and say, well, these aren't actually true. These things didn't actually happen. Or the apostles who either wrote the documents or verified the documents, who were with Jesus for three years straight, who have a guarantee that the Holy Spirit gave them flawless recollection of things Jesus said and did. Don't you see how foolish it is to say some university professor who is a higher critic has any kind of authority to tear apart the words in this book? It makes absolutely no sense. 2,000 years later does not give you a better vantage point than the apostles themselves. That's why we trust this book. 2 Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we had made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What Peter says, he says, guys, we did not make this up. I was there for the transfiguration. I saw Moses and Elijah with my own eyes. I heard God the Father's voice. This is my son. I'm not making this up. It's not a lie. Paul says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul describes it this way, while all of this Bible is in one sense man's words, Zechariah, Isaiah, Malachi wrote these books, but all of their words were God's words because the Holy Spirit inspired them to say exactly what he wanted them to say without error. This entire book, as is as if God had breathed it out and literally spoken it with his mouth, it is that flawless and without error that we can trust it. Let's go back to Peter, Second Peter this time. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Nobody got up one morning and said, you know, I'm bored, it's raining outside, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. It didn't go that way. The prophets spoke, it says, when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting way to describe this. This carried along is actually a sailing term. 
maybe some of you have been out there sailing, and if you don't have a big enough skag in the middle, uh, a dagger board, what you find in really strong wind is that all of a sudden the boat just gets turned to run with the wind, and the boat is carried along with the wind where the wind wants it to go. You just like give up and let it go. That is exactly what Peter says is a good description of how the prophets were inspired. The Holy Spirit carried them along exactly where he wanted them to go with their words. So they are without error. This entire book is God's revelation. None of it is human speculation. That is why the prophecy about Jesus that we have seen in the Old Testament can be fulfilled and spoken with razor-sharp specificity. You don't find that in the religious books of any other religion in the world. The Bible tells us to treat the books of our New Testament with the same authority as the books of our Old Testament. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. The key part to notice is the very last part of this, these verses. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what is happening is Paul's letters are in circulation in that time. And by the way, if you've read some of Paul's letters, there's some things he says that can be hard to understand. Anybody agree with that? Yeah, there's some things that are hard to understand. And so people are saying, maybe we shouldn't trust these. Maybe these aren't parts of the Bible. What should we do with these? And Peter says, well, there's some people who twist them and distort them like they do the other scriptures. What does Peter call Paul's letters? Scripture. Peter recognized Paul's letters as being part of the authoritative word of God even while Peter was still alive and Paul was still alive. You see, some people will come and tell you that Peter and Paul's letters were only made into the New Testament hundreds of years later when a canon list came out from a meeting of the church. Let me tell you how that worked. Peter and Paul's letters were always accepted as Scripture when they were written. Hundreds of years later, canon lists came out so that people would not drift away from them, not to make them part of the Bible at that point, but to show you they've always been part of the Bible at that point. That's the way it has always worked. So we've seen that this book is authoritative. This book is trustworthy. This book is something we can base our life on. The trend of culture and society is to question this book, to undermine this book, and to tell you that it's just a bunch of gobbledygook. But today I think I've showed you the other side. And so I have a response for you. You have a choice to make this morning. How are you going to treat this book? Are you going to be like a liberal college professor and stand 
as an authority over it. And when it says, oh, homosexuality, well, I think it's an old book that doesn't know what it's talking about. Love your neighbor? <laughs> doesn't know my neighbor. I can just disregard that. Or will you humbly put yourself under the authority of this book and say, I will trust this book and everything it says and it will guide and direct what I do because this book tells me about the hero that I desperately need whose name is Jesus. Will you stand in authority over it or you stand in humility under it? That is your choice today. Before I close in prayer, I'm going to ask you to signify that decision and to solidify that decision by a response on your part. And if you decide to stand in humility under this book, as I close in prayer, will you stand as a way of driving in the sand of your life and saying, I will fall under the authority of my Bible, not live in authority over my Bible. So if you desire to make that decision today, would you stand right now as I prepare to close in prayer? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving us such a trustworthy, such a reliable word. So many times when we look at this book, we see things that are hard to understand and we question it. We're not too sure if we can trust it. And like so many people in our culture, we act like plastic surgeons, nipping and tucking, taking out little pieces that are offensive to us to make the Bible uh, more into our own image. And we just confess that is our sin. I pray that you would help us this week to always live in humility under this word, knowing that this word we need in our life every day it's essential for spiritual life as bread is for human life. Thank you for giving us your trustworthy, authoritative, and reliable book. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.